Hello and welcome to the Edinburgh University History and Games Lab podcast. In this series of episodes, we will be talking to historians, game creators, heritage professionals, and others about history, games, and the places where they meet. I'm your host, Edward Gafton, and in this episode, I am very, ple- very much pleased to be joined by Brian Train. Brian is a Canadian game designer who has been designing conflict simulation games for the civilian market for over 25 years, with over 50 published designs to date. His special interests in game design in game design are irregular warfare, Paul Mill game, political military games, concepts of political influence in games, and asymmetry in games generally. In his spare time, he is an education officer in the Ministry of Advanced Education of British Columbia, Canada. What sets Brian apart from most other war game designers is that he is interested in, in irregular warfare, such as civil disorder and civil or guerrilla conflicts, and war games that have significant political elements to them. His published game designs include Arriba España in 1997, A Distant Plane Insurgency in Afghanistan 2013, co-designed with Volker Runke, which was the episode, which was the guest on episode 10 of this podcast, Colonial Twilight, The French-Algerian War 2017, a Distant Plane and Colonial Twilight are part of the coin series, which we've discussed again in the Volko episode, based around his game system presenting guerrilla warfare and counterinsurgency coin around the world. Brief Border Wars, released in 2020, is going to be the main focus of, on this podcast. Brian, thank you so much for being on. How are you today? I'm doing fine, Edward. Thank you very much for asking me today. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for being on. For listeners unfamiliar with Brian's game, Brief Border Wars, it is a Quadri game or set of four mini games on short border conflicts of the 20, 20th and 21st century using a card driven system that models the chaotic stop and start nature of these impromptu wars. The four conflicts are El Salvador versus Honduras, the fo- so called the football war, which lasted about 100 hours in 1969, the Turkish invasion of Cyprus in 1974, China versus Vietnam in 1979, and Israel versus Hezbollah. Southern Lebanon, a region of Southern Lebanon, in 2006. So each game in this series takes seven turns. Brief Border Wars is about aggression and is and was made for players to quickly finish one scenario and then jump into the other. Brian, we had Volko recently, and so I want I want to start with your collaboration with him in order to link the two podcasts uh, together. How was working on the coin series, and how did you two get to working together? Thanks. That's a, a great question to start with. Um, well, I got started in wargaming uh, in uh, about 1979. So I, I started playing then, but I didn't start designing until uh, about the mid-90s, the earlier mid-90s. And from the start, I like to do games on political military topics and irregular warfare, as you noted. Uh, there was a game that I designed on the uh, French-Algerian War from 1954 to 1962. Uh, it was called Algeria, not Colonial Twilight. That was a game I did later on the uh, uh, on the, the, the same war, but using a different system. And that game was the first game, I think, to be published in any language about the French-Algerian War. Mm. And I published it in 2000. Um, and after the beginning of the, uh, of the American occupation of Iraq uh, in the later 2000s, it started to attract a little bit of attention, I was surprised to find, among the professional wargaming circles. So at the end of 2007, I was contacted by somebody in the office of the Secretary of Defense, which is part of the Pentagon uh, in in Washington, 
uh, about how he had used my game on Algeria mm -hmm. as kind of the framework for a game model he was making professionally in his work on the uh, Iraqi insurgency. Uh, and this is 2007, so you know that's getting quite mm -hmm. underway at the time. Um, and he had uh, he invited me to a conference of a group called the Military Operations Research Society, which is a group of professionals, uh, analysts, and such. Um, you know, in the U.S. Uh, de uh, Defense Department, uh, to, uh, to go and see a presentation that he had made about his work, and so yeah, I, I wanted to go see that. Uh, I attended this conference. I ended up making a couple presentations of my own about my work, uh, and I was very surprised to see, uh, you know, that my work was actually known among professional analysts, many of whom were hobby gamers themselves. But I was gratified to see that they saw some kind of professional connection or linkage. Mm -hmm between what I was doing as a hobbyist, a civilian, and their work as professional analysts of contemporary conflict, you know, where we had been working. So while I was at this conference, I met someone who was uh, a, a, an instructor at the Sherman Kent School for Analysis, which is where Volko was teaching at the time. So they were teachers together. And it ended up that um, I worked on a lightened up version of this Algeria game that this uh, fellow could use in his classes because the Algerian war was one of his case studies on revolutionary warfare. So Volko saw him using this game in his classroom and he picked up a copy for himself and he went through it. And part of what was in that game inspired him to create the GMT coin system mm -hmm. uh, because he was then working on and in Abyss, uh, which was the very first GMT coin system game. And it was about the insurgency in Colombia. And so uh, he, uh, you know, used and he put that system together uh, with some inspiration from the system I was using in my game on Algeria. Um, I got to participate in a playtest of Ande and Abyss a year or two later, uh, and that's where I could see where he was going with this particular system. I thought it was really interesting, and it amplified on a lot of points that I had been kind of fumbling around trying to make, and I thought that, uh, you know, he was uh, doing a good job of putting that together uh, in, a, in a pleasing way. And uh, after another couple of years, Volko and I actually met at a conference on professional wargaming called Connections uh, in Washington, and we, I think we really hit it off and it wasn't very long before we agreed to collaborate on a coin system game. And uh, as Volko likes to tell the story, he let me pick the topic and I picked mm -hmm. Afghanistan specifically because it was a, a real challenge. Uh, and also because it was something that was going on at the time, this was 2012, 2013, and NATO had not yet ended its combat mission uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, so I thought it was pretty, it would make an interesting study and it was particularly critical to try and take this game system and uh, put it in a very contemporary sitting, uh, you know, while the war was still actually going on. So that's how we got to meet and uh, it was very, very pleasurable working with him. He's, uh, he's a pleasant person who's open to criticism uh, and uh, always, you know, suggestive and helpful to anybody and everybody uh, who has an idea about something. You know, he is a, a genuinely pleasant person. And as you discovered in your podcast, he's a, a very able speaker. He's a very good teacher. Uh, he's retired now, but you can see what a good teacher mm -hmm. and lecturer that, uh, that he made uh, while he was working. So good story all around. Yeah. Speaking of stories, I also want to touch on how did you get into wargaming? How 
how did you spark this passion for wargaming? How did this all start? Yeah, well, thank you for the question. It's um, I it's a I I did uh, mention to you this before, uh, but uh, I was um, I I started uh, into wargaming in about 1979, and my uncle. Uh, sent me a copy of Tactics 2, which is a very old uh, war game from, well, it was it's, was in print for a long time, but it was originally came out in the late 1950s. Very simple war game, uh, but he sent it to me for a Christmas present, and uh, it opened up this whole world uh, for me because I'd always been interested in military history, um, you know, and war, like, mo like many boys were. Um, and uh, just to see that uh, there was like this whole world of, of gaming and simulation and all the different topics it could treat of. Um, I don't know if my parents ever forgave him for doing that, mm -hmm. uh, but I will always be grateful uh, uh, to him. And uh, this morning, I happened to hear from his son that he had died yesterday uh, peacefully and at a, a very ripe old age. Uh, but he was a kind man, a considerate man, and uh, I thank him for, uh, you know, for opening my eyes to, to this hobby and to this uh, way of, of looking at the world uh, as I've come to see it through designing games. And with respect, I'd like to maybe dedicate this podcast to his memory. Absolutely, absolutely. And thank you so much for sharing this, this with us. Thank you. Now, I want to speak and I want to touch on Brief Border Wars. How, do you, how did you end up designing Brief Border Wars? How did that story start? How do you start with, do you have an idea? Does the war come first? Does the do the four conflicts fall first, and then you kind of like wrap it up in a neat package, or do you just kind of like have a concept and then you find the the wars that like would fit in your in your game concept? Um, it's that's a good question. It's some of each. Uh, sometimes I get uh, an idea for a particular game system. Um, I've designed. I've I've I've, I've had about over fifty published titles. Uh, and about half of my games um, belong to maybe one sort of system or family of another, although there can be considerable variation uh, within each game, although it kind of clings to a general system. Uh, but then there's about another 25 games that I've designed that uh, are really one-offs. You know, they, mm -hmm. uh, it's a system that I didn't use before and I didn't use again. So it's a little bit of, of both. Um, sometimes I'll come up with an idea for a system or I'll hear about a particular conflict and I'll think, oh, well, maybe I could do it this way. Maybe I could do it that way. Uh, but sometimes the ideas for the games themselves, they can come from lots of different sources. Um, the Brief Border Wars, I would say, has its origin in something that was not quite a dare, <laughs> put it that way. <clears throat> Uh, because years ago, uh, we were uh, some people and I were kind of hacking around talking on uh, Consum World, which mm -hmm. is a, uh, a war game related website. It's fairly old uh, and uh, usually like old, old school, hard, hardcore war gamers go there. Uh, and uh, we were talking about short wars and someone talked about uh, the war, uh, the seven day war uh, mm -hmm. in Teshin, in the Teshin region in 1919. And uh, that was a war that lasted only seven days, and it had a beginning and an end. And someone was saying, oh, well, we'll go into a, a Teshin game. So I thought, hmm. And I looked into it, and I thought, well, it wouldn't be a really interesting topic, maybe. But uh, I think the idea of a short war, like a game system that treated of games that were uh, fairly short, 
bounded in time and space uh, and that ended up largely where they, the way they began, um, you know, and were inconclusive, but could still be an interesting matchup would probably be an interesting uh, kind of idea to explore in a game system. So in 2015, I came out uh, with a game called The Little War, which was a game about the another war that was one week long uh, between Slovakia and Hungary in mm -hmm. 1939. Uh, so as Czechoslovakia was crumbling, as the you know Nazis were you know tearing it apart in uh, into uh, different uh, protectorates and things, there was a one week interval where Hungary decided to snap up a, 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 a certain part of Eastern Slovakia. And the two uh, armies fought a very, very short war for like six, seven days before the Germans uh, shut it down and uh, got on you know, with uh, the rest of their preparations. Because this was March of 1939. So you know, the invasion of Poland was, mm -hmm. was not so far away. Uh, but this was the kind of thing that I was looking for. It was very short, seven days long. Uh, it was definitely bounded in time. It was definitely bounded in space because both sides had very limited forces that they could apply. Uh, Hungary had, uh, its, its military was not in great shape at the time. Uh, the Czechoslovakian military was um, even worse because it was being torn apart into a mass of individuals uh, and the Slovakian military uh, as, a, as an Axis satellite was slowly trying to build itself out of uh, you know, this, uh, this partition and this division. So it was really chaotic on their part. So they had all these sort of ad hoc units that were kind of pouring onto the battlefield. Um, and things ended up pretty much the way they began a week before. Um, and so I, I picked this particular conflict and then I derived a very simple system that was driven by a deck of ordinary playing cards uh, that would drive the action. And the idea was, was that the, uh, the, the Slovakian player got all the red cards and mm -hmm. the um, Hungarian player got all the black cards. Uh, but you had the you had the, de the the deck of cards was mixed, so the red and black cards came out, and you knew, you didn't know what order. So it would happen that you know one side would have more cards than the other, and would be able to get more done in a turn. But would they be actually be able to um, to to take advantage of that? And at the same time, the two different suits of the cards, uh, hearts and diamonds um, and uh, clubs and spades, they were further divided into movement and combat. So you could get, maybe you could get, uh, you know, say you're the, the, the uh, Slovakian player and you get, uh, you luck out, you get like five cards, but they're all for combat. So if you're not able to move your units into contact, you won't be able to use them. Mm -hmm. So again, uh, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast about the, the this sort of chaotic stop and start nature of these conflicts that I'm talking about in brief border wars. And that was very much that because the, the two sides had really poor control over their own forces and they had really poor control over the battlefield and the way things were going. And of course, the war, you know, after one week was just boom, shut down by the Germans. Uh, and uh, so it, it, I think that was a, that was a good way to do it. So I had this game on the Little War, and it was included as uh, the second game in a package of two games that uh, Holland Spiel put out. Uh, that's an American print-on-demand com uh, uh, publishing company. And they put that out together with a game that I had done in 2014 on the Ukraine crisis um, of, of 2014. And that was a game that I designed 
not on a dare, but over a weekend mm -hmm. in March 2014, when uh, they had the uh, the referendum in the Crimea as to whether to join the Soviet, uh, the, um, the the Russians or not, and to like you know restore from the days of the Soviet Union. And it looked like that there was going to be possibly an overt Russian invasion and, uh, you know, an, a, a large overt war between uh, Ukraine and Russia. As it turned out, it wasn't. Uh, but uh, again, I took some time and put together a political military, a very quick uh, political military game on the different dimensions of that particular conflict between Ukraine and Russia where you can fight this conflict, but it doesn't necessarily have to go to a shooting war. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, uh, those two came out in a double package from Holland Spiel, and people seemed to like it. And I liked that system, and I went on uh, to create uh, this, this Quadra game, which is inspired from uh, an old game company called SPI, or Simulations Publications, which is an American company active in the 70s and 80s. They really got the science of serious historical wargaming started and maintained. Uh, and they had this idea for what they call quadra games, and you would buy four small games in a package, and they would have a set of core rules, uh, and uh, they, they had them on all kinds of different topics. There were like ancient battles, uh, uh, American Civil War, World War II, modern conflict, and they all had different core rules, uh, which gave you the basics of how to move, fight, and you know get your business done in the game. But then each of the games was about a particular conflict or a particular battle, and of course each. Uh, conflict or battle had its own peculiar circumstances, mm -hmm. so there would be exclusive rules uh, that would uh, replace or augment or suspend certain rules in the basic rules. So that's a really interesting concept because you learn the basic rules and then that equips you to learn these other four games very quickly because the basics of, um, uh, of the basic mechanics are the same between all of them. And that's exactly the concept that I took with, uh, with this brief Border Wars quad. So there's a, a set of um, system rules, okay, that uh, are only four pages long. And then there are uh, four sets of exclusive rules that uh, this one is for the Third Indochina mm -hmm. War or China-Vietnam. Uh, and they uh, identify the forces and, you know, the parameters of the conflict and any special rules uh, or, or uh, particular conditions that happen to be in effect for that game. So you read the basic rules first, then you read the exclusive rules, mm -hmm. and then you're equipped to sit down and play the game. Um, so that's, uh, I, I think, a, a really good way to, to do it. Uh, and uh, SPI introduced the idea of the Quadra game, and it kind of died out with them too. Uh, so after about 40 years, I brought it back. That's amazing. Yeah. And actually, that was going to be my first question on Brief Border Wars is like, what does it mean for it to, to be a Quadra game? But I want to then transition to a different question. Uh, how how was it to go from a large-scale conflict, like with a distant plane, to then with Brief Border Wars? How, how did you have to change your outlook and like designing these games? What were the decisions that you made that were different from a uh, distant plane, for example, which was con concentrated on a on a massive conflict from, from the get-go, and that was kind of like its, its scope? Yeah, I, I've designed games um, at different levels of conflict. Um, one area I usually don't touch is tactical games, mm. uh, which is where the units involved are very small, you know, like from individual man to, um, you know, a group of like maybe up to 100 people. 
at a in a group um, and uh, where the time scales are very short and the ground scales are small. I've really designed only one game uh, at that level, and that's Civil Power, which is a generic game about urban combat, you know, mobs, riots, you know, those sorts of uh, jolly things. Um, the rest of my game output has been either operational scale uh, or what they call campaign level or at strategic scale. And so I find the operational scale, which is where I would call, I, I would put these brief border wars games at the operational scale, mm. um, because it's in a sense, it's like a campaign. It's like a, it's like an episode of fighting uh, that takes place in the context of a larger conflict. Uh, whereas within a strategic scale game, like a distant plane or colonial twilight, uh, or uh, the other counterinsurgency games I've designed using other systems, they may have, uh, they may divide, they may be divided into campaign phases, but you are fighting a campaign and you're relating it into a larger house, mm -hmm. you know, like a larger context. And that's what you get with a distant plane or colonial twilight. Uh, with these brief border war games, uh, you know, it's a particular uh, short term uh, phase of conflict. You know that's uh, that's divide. You know that, that that's again bounded by time and bounded by space, and that drives many things. That drives many decisions when you're um, throwing concepts into the game. Um, when you're doing research for a game, uh, you need to be thorough and you need to be accurate, uh, uh, but you need to be choosy, and mm -hmm. that's very important. Um, I mean, it's. It, we'll we'll talk about accuracy in games later, but I think it's it's important to uh, to choose and to grade uh, just what was really important. What are the points? Like any thesis, uh, like any thesis or like any work of art, you have an idea that you want to get across, and what is what are the main components to that idea that you want to get across? Um, and you have to choose uh, what supports that. Uh, and what doesn't support that, but needs to be included in in the mention, you know, in in, in your work, uh, and just how well supported is it, and just how consistent, how coherent and integrated is your thesis. So that's what you need to do in an operational scale game. You can't. Um, there are certain things that you have to leave out. Um, you know, like uh, for example, you know, it's it, it's pitched at a certain level where you know the penetrative powers of tank mm -hmm. guns don't really matter very much okay in a tactical level game uh, it'll you know it matters uh, but on an operational scale game the kind of things that matters that, that matter are uh, more like uh, perhaps the command and control and communication systems that each side had because you're maneuvering discrete units back and forth you know trying to accomplish objectives now the particular objectives that you're trying to capture may be territorial or they may be symbolic. Uh, again, that kind of depends on the larger context, the strategic level um, as to, um, you know, uh, as to where, where what, what are you trying to accomplish in this? Are you trying to seize territory or are you trying to uh, reduce the enemy's forces or are you trying to make some kind of a uh, symbolic, you know, or psychological point? Uh, you know, is, you know, and, and the uh, different games in Brief Border Wars, they all have different contexts in this mm -hmm. sense. 
So um, I take, for example, um, the El Salvador and Honduras war, the football war. As you noted, that was only uh, 100 hours. You know, it was only about four days before the Organization of American States uh, made the party shut it down. Um, now, people like to joke that, oh, yeah, the football war, it was about a football game. Well, mm -hmm. yes, that was kind of the trigger. Uh, but leading up to that point, there had been a lot of political and economic and social tension between El Salvador and Honduras because uh, of the economic conditions prevailing in both countries. And there was uh, a, a considerable conflict within both countries uh, because of El Salvadorians living and working in Honduras and Hondurans living and working in El Salvador. And as the economies of the two countries started to fray uh, and the governments became desperate, the El, El Salvadorian government decided that um, there needed to be some kind of an armed gesture, you know, mm -hmm. a very decisive gesture made in the direction of Honduras as a way of dispelling this tension and of diverting attention. Therefore, it's El Salvador is the aggressor in this particular situation. But there was a lot of tension that uh, went on between the two uh, countries for years before this very, very short war. However, that was a war that was designed to try and dispel that tension um, neither side was looking to conquer the other completely, and neither could have conquered the other mm -hmm. completely, but they didn't want to. Again, there was a psychological point to be made here. Uh, another example in this uh, context is the China-Vietnam War of 1979. So China, at the end of 1979, invaded northern Vietnam, went into Vietnamese territory for a very short distance, and then left. And the ostensible reason they advanced was, well, they said they wanted to teach Vietnam a lesson. Mm -hmm. And uh, what that lesson was, people haven't really agreed on. Uh, <laughs> but again, this was a war that wasn't decided. The, the objective was not to conquer Vietnam, uh, mm -hmm. and it wasn't to destroy Vietnam as a country. Uh, but it was something that was there. Uh, you know, the context there was psychological more than anything else. And both sides ended up discovering, you know, a lot of, about uh, about the other side and, and how it fought. Uh, you know, the uh, the uh, the Chinese armed forces, the People's Liberation Army, hadn't fought a war for thirty years. They hadn't fought anything since Korea. And um, in the meantime, of course, they'd had ten years of turmoil as the Cultural mm -hmm. Revolution. So this was a real shakeup for the People's Liberation Army and its leadership because they discovered how badly their troops. Uh, were supported, how badly they fought, how badly they communicated during the war, and how much of a disaster it was. And that put China on a path of modernization, economic and military and social modernization. And it really bolstered Deng Xiaoping, you know, and, mm -hmm. and his idea of putting China onto a different track uh, where it is today, you know. So if that war had never been fought, maybe the China of today would look very, very different. So sometimes these kinds of things uh, can have great repercussions uh, down the road. So those are psychological ones. And then the second uh, uh, Lebanon war uh, scenario, that's the 2006 Israeli and Hezbollah one, partly psychological, but also partly kinetic or military, mm -hmm. uh, because in this match, you have the Israeli Defense Force, uh, which is a regular professional military force, uh, very high tech, very hierarchical, going into southern Lebanon and engaging Hezbollah, which is an irregular force, um, uh, but trying to reduce their ability to damage Israeli territory and infrastructure with their rocket and missile attacks. 
So that was partly a psychological war to kind of muscle Hezbollah out of there and teach them, you know, who dominates southern Lebanon, uh, but also to to uh, destroy um, Hezbollah's forces uh, in in the only well the only part of Hezbollah's forces that posed a direct threat to Israel itself. So you have those kinds of things. So you know, again, with a strategic war, you have all kinds of political. Um, social, economic, and psychological factors that come into play. Uh, and these in turn affect operational games uh, like these uh, brief border wars that I've been speaking about. Mm. Hope that's clear. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, just, I'm just processing and I'm thinking, uh, and you mentioned being choosy. And then my next question is, how did you decide on these four conflicts and why? Like you've spoken at large about, you know, the repercussions of these conflicts, but like, what is it that unites these four conflicts, uh, perhaps, is, is a better question in this sense. Yeah. Um, well, I did touch on them be uh, before. My, my criteria, I, I looked at a lot of different mm -hmm. conflicts because, you know, border conflicts um, are not as common now, uh, but are a, a pretty common, you know, aspect of modern warfare. Um, my criteria were that they be fairly short, uh, so you go from 100 hours in the El Salvador uh, Honduran War to um, about uh, two or three months uh, in the China-Vietnam War. Uh, so that, first of all, they're short. Uh, they have a definite beginning and a definite end. So there is a time, you know, while, while each game is seven turns long, but each turn can uh, treat a very short period of time or a longer period of time, depending on what's going on and what's being reflected in the game. Um, but they had a very definite beginning and an end. Uh, so the end is imposed by, uh, well, the, the Hezbollah one is ended by a UN mandate. Uh, the Organization of American States finished, um, you know, the, uh, the Hundred Hour War in El Salvador. And China, Vietnam, well, China ended it by withdrawing unilaterally from, uh, from Vietnam. So short beginning and an end. Uh, and confined to a peculiar or particular geographical area. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, you know, just where you have obviously the border, but not every part of the border uh, can be the scene of a conflict between two countries. So in El Salvador and Honduras, uh, the El Salvadorian player who's the aggressor here, uh, because of the way uh, of, um, the, because of the way the mountains and hills lie and where the roads are, between El Salvador and Honduras, there's quite a bit of border between the two countries, but only part of it is serviced by roads. So essentially it divides itself into two fronts. So the, at the beginning of the game, the El, El Salvador player has to figure out how much oomph am I gonna put between this front and that front? And in the China-Vietnam game, for example, that is very, very important. It's a very important decision for um, the Chinese player because there were two front commands that were in charge of uh, uh, prosecuting the war against Vietnam. And they communicated very, very poorly with each other. So that is a real limitation uh, on the Chinese player. And it's brought out in the game in that, you know, when you play the cards, you're only allowed to play them on one front or the other. You can't, you can't do both. Uh, so that's an important limitation, you know, historical and in the game on the Chinese player. Um, so again, confined to a specific area, um, and confined to a certain, let's call it a certain level of violence. Uh, the, the armies that are shown in these games are 
frankly, not very good ones, mm. uh, or they've been thrown in uh, to con. They've been thrown into combat on very, very short notice. Um, so El Salvador and Honduras, they're you know Latin American armies that are you know maybe not very high quality, not very well equipped. Um, in uh, um, in uh, the the Turkish uh, 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 the Cyprus 1974 one, you have a professional Turkish military that's doing an air and land invasion of Cyprus. Uh, so they're professionals and they're faced by the Cypriot armed forces, which were not very good quality. And you have irregular forces on both sides that were more or less like armed mobs. Um, so that's an asymm asymmetry that you have to bring out. Um, and then uh, in the Israeli Hezbollah one, the Israeli army is one of the most professional uh, armies in the world. Uh, however, they were committed in a very short uh, in a very staccato, piecemeal way by mm -hmm. the Israeli government, piece by piece. And of course, the Israeli army has a small professional corps, but most of it is made up of, of reservists. And these people have to be recalled from their jobs or their studies or whatever and assembled into their units before they're ready to go. And that's another aspect. That's another limitation on the Israeli player mm -hmm. in that particular game. So um, that all that all contributes to the kind of chaos and start and stop nature because these wars just uh, you know they just kind of poof up here uh, and they're fought for a short time and then they, and then they're shut down. Hmm. Yeah, and and you mentioned asymmetry, and I want to ask you how does asymmetry in your games make for interesting matchups, and particularly in brief border wars? Well. Most of my games have some kind of level of asymmetry in them. Um, it's very rare in any battle where you would find the two forces more or less identically organized, equipped, uh, and led. Um, asymmetry is all about war. Uh, and you don't want, I, I think if you were a general, you wouldn't want to fight a battle against someone who was just like you, mm -hmm. even though that's kind of how they train. Uh, you don't want to fight against someone who's exactly like you because, you know, he's got the same advantages, but he's got the same disadvantage. You may have some knowledge of how to go about it, um, but you really don't want it to be fair. Um, and so that kind of unfairness you kind of want to bring out in when you're designing a game about an asymmetric conflict. You want to stress these asymmetries where they make sense. Uh, and then, of course, because they have to be a sort of enjoyable game, because that's what that's what differentiates uh, sort of civilian hobbyist games like what I do from professional analytical games uh, because they're not interested in making it enjoyable as mm -hmm. a game. Uh, so with me, I have to you know try to be as true to the history as I can, uh, but introduce things into the game to make it an interesting um, uh, make an, uh, an interesting matchup between the, uh, the forces and, and make sure that both players are challenged. In trying to uh, to come up with uh, you know with a, a workable plan to win the game, and winning of course you know there's all kinds of different winning. Um, so there's asymmetry in forces. There's asymmetry in organization. Uh, there's asymmetry in objectives. Uh, so um, again, uh, like I, I mentioned in a couple of the games, uh, like the uh, the Israeli Hezbollah game and in the Cyprus game there's a very large asymmetry between the two forces because you have professional Turkish military, although it's small in size and it's operating at the, at the end of a very long logistical line. And then you've got the Israeli professionals versus against the Hezbollah irregulars. Um, so there's, there's that asymmetry, uh, but they also have their own limitations. Uh, like mm -hmm. I mentioned, 
for example, um, the reservists who have to be mobilized. And the more reservists you mobilize, uh, the greater chance you'll have of dominating, but you end up giving up uh, victory points, which is you know how you win the game. Um, uh, if you mobilize too many, uh, because that uh, throws a serious, um, a, a, a serious wrench into the Israeli economy uh, and society. So you don't want to do too much of that. Um, and so there's, and then there's asymmetry of organization where you have unity of command versus a divided command. Uh, and I touched on that, for example, in the China-Vietnam game, mm -hmm. where it's the, the division between uh, command elements in the Chinese forces is absolutely critical. It was critical in the war, uh, but it's critical in the game as well. And that helps people to understand. Meanwhile, the Vietnamese player, the Viet uh, Vietnamese People's Army, they're working on what you call interior lines. So it's easier for them to switch from one front to the other. And of course they have uh, significant irregular forces of their own that pop up inside Vietnam, but behind the Chinese lines as they advance into China. So you can't really, um, so you can't really, you know, suppress them completely. And likewise, the uh, the Hezbollah game, uh, Second Lebanon War, the Israeli player is trying to engage the Hezbollah uh, combat units, which are shielding the rocket missile units. So he has to find them, engage them and neutralize them before he can start destroying the uh, rocket missile units, which are which is really the objective. Well, he has two objectives. He has, first of all, to destroy those rocket missile units. He also has to be left in, uh, in occupation, in undisputed occupation of as much of southern Lebanon as he can, because that shoves Hezbollah back, uh, because a critical factor is the range of the rockets and missiles that Hezbollah mm -hmm. was using against Israeli territory. So they have two kinds of objectives there. So again, that's asymmetry of objectives. Um, and in these games, uh, you know, the, the one side is the aggressor and one side wins points uh, for, you know, occupying generally territorial objectives, but also for, you know, uh, slapping down, in some cases, slapping down the, uh, the enemy's forces. So these are all different asymmetries, you know, that were in the historical conflicts. We try to, um, uh, I try to, to reflect them adequately. Uh, and proportionately, that's an important word to remember when you're designing a game, uh, in, in the game design. And then you try and work it even further. So in all of these uh, brief border wars games, there are sets of optional rules and variations mm -hmm. that you can throw in further. So if you want to accentuate or mute the particular asymmetries in order to make it a more enjoyable game between you and your opponent, uh, there's all kinds of rules uh, that are that you can fit into the mechanism of the game. So, for example, um, I was talking earlier about how cards that are divided between movement values and combat values, how they can be uh, tweaked, you know. And um, there's also special action cards which allow different uh, um, forces to do different things or to refit their units or you know do other things like that. Uh, and of course, you can reduce that number of cards given to one side or the other to give them a disadvantage. Um, and there are other rules that you can change or suspend. You can give guerrillas a little bit more of an advantage in knowing the terrain uh, or not, as the case may be. And you can vary command and control aspects, you know, which are by, by limiting how a player can play their cards. Uh, so these are all different little further variations and asymmetries that you can mm -hmm. put into the game pretty easily and tweak the contest even further. 
and you can make it more historical or less historical. Uh, or, you know, it depends on your, um, you know, I guess it kind of depends on your ultimate objective. Do you want to have something that is, is tilted more towards uh, modeling the, the actual conflict, which was probably highly asymmetric, uh, or do you want it to make it a little bit more even-handed, you know, and maybe a little bit more of an enjoyable or, or obvious contest uh, between the two players? Mm. But those aspects of how to work asymmetry into a game uh, is something that I've been doing through my whole career, my whole design career. Uh, it's not enough just to, um, to, uh, to, to, to show how the different sides were organized or equipped or how they fought. Uh, it's also... To, you you can even work it in that they have different philosophies of warfare, different doctrines, to the point where they're actually playing different games. Um, one of the games that I'm most proud of is also my simplest game with mm -hmm. the shortest rules. It's called Guerrilla Checkers. And I was working on uh, this particular game here, um, this one here. Sorry, I have to point this one. There we go. Yeah, uh, this Kandahar one. Sorry, it's, it's the screen's backwards. Um, uh, so that that Kandahar game, I happened to be working on that with some other people, and I was lying awake one night thinking about the conflict in Afghanistan and the both forces in Afghanistan, the coalition and the Afghan government forces, you know, sort of like the, the Western forces, and then you have the Taliban uh, and the warlords who are irregular forces. Both of them are there in Afghanistan. They share the, the same time, they share the same space, but they treat the terrain completely differently, both the physical terrain and the human terrain. So essentially, I had the idea that you have these two opposing forces on the same map in this case, but they're playing different games at mm -hmm. the same time on the same map. And so Guerrilla Checkers is kind of a mashup of Checkers and Go, where the, uh, the um, counterinsurgent player skips over these irregular pieces like a king in checkers and can they can kill large amounts of in, and disperse large amounts of insurgent forces in one go uh, but they have to watch themselves against being surrounded and engulfed by insurgents uh, which is the go part of the game mm -hmm. and you play it on a checkerboard um, so games take maybe 15 20 minutes uh, it's very, very simple rules. Uh, the game's uh, got a few digital, uh, it's had a few digital ports, but of course everybody has the pieces that they could play a game. Mm -hmm. um, but this is one of the simplest games that I've ever designed. And it's the one that I'm, I'm proudest of because it's the one that's distilled right down to the essence of asymmetry between the two. Uh, where, as I said, you have the two sides are playing different games on the same board at the same time. And yeah. uh, that's... Uh, you know, again, you know, it's it's such a simple thing, and I really, really wish that I had more simple ideas like that. It's so easy to come up with a complicated idea, uh, but to to work it down to like mm. take that bloated initial idea and work it down to its essentials. Um, uh, I, I I did a talk a while ago about simple games and the value of simple games, and there's a quote by uh, Saint Exupéry uh, about. You know, it's 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 beautiful when there is nothing left to take away, mm. uh, and knowing when to stop taking away, I think, is is uh, an important part of how you approach many things in life, not just game design. It's beautiful, yeah. And I'm thinking uh, all of the the games that you mentioned, Tactics to Little War, Guerrilla Checkers, 
to all of these. I will add links in the descriptions for our audience to to check out further. Uh, I want to get to the big question that we ask uh, everyone that comes on the podcast about games and historically uh, games being historically accurate. Should games be historically accurate? And I know we've touched upon upon this, but what is your honest take? And we just spoke about like you know this simple design and not having to take anything away. But how about games that do have something that you you can take away from in terms of like how you know you, you perceive history and perceive historical fact? Um, should all games be historically accurate? Why are your games historically accurate? Is perhaps a better question. What what is your take on this? Well, um, yes, ga- historical games should be historically accurate. Uh, you know, a game like Stratego <laughs> can't be really mm-hmm. historically accurate uh, because it's just red versus blue and it's an abstract contest. Uh, but where you're trying to touch on, um, where you're trying to present let's call it the, 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 the essence of an historical conflict. If you're trying to be serious about this at all, um, then yes, you need to be as accurate as possible. However, uh, there's, there are functional limits to that accuracy. Um, this goes back to the earliest days of historical wargaming as a hobby. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it really got started in late 60s, early 70s, uh, when there the, the, more and more games about historical conflicts started appearing. And um, I, I mentioned earlier about sort of like your bloated initial concept. So there were a lot of games that came out that were highly intricate, you know, uh, and very complicated in their processes. Uh, pages and pages of charts and die rolls and tables and all this kind of thing. And they were played on huge maps with thousands of counters. There are still games like that coming out these days. Uh, but back then, this sort of thing, nobody had done anything like that before. Mm-hmm. And people were really kind of wowed by it. But you had to ask yourself as you're working your way through these things and getting bloody fingertips, sorting out all the counters, you know, into their little between games, you have to ask yourself, am I really adding to what I'm learning about Mm -hmm. this game? Couldn't this be done maybe a little faster and we'd be learning the same lessons? So there's where the realism versus the playability aspect comes in. Uh, And if you shove it too far one way or the other, you're going to end up with something that is not, that is more of a chore to play than anything else. Uh, now there's always exceptions, you know, there are certain people who just absolutely delight in these kinds mm-hmm. of things and they don't think anything of spending, you know, days on end playing these games. Um, that's fine. And I used to do a little bit of that myself. I don't really have much of the energy for that anymore though. Um, and then there's the playability, which can go too far the other way and kind of make a mockery of, mm-hmm. of what is going on. Uh, a lot of people talk about, uh, you know, Euro games or, you know, having a theme and then there's some kind of, uh, of, um, of, you know, they have a, they have a mechanical theme and then they have some kind of, 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 um, narrative theme kind of nailed on mm-hmm. top of it. So you've got like, uh, oh, I don't know, set collection or worker placement or something like that. That's the mechanism you want to work for this game. And then you say, oh, yeah. And by the way, it's about uh, selling cheese in Renaissance mm-hmm. Italy, you know, uh, it, but it really it's a game about worker placement. But they'd like you to think it's about cheese, you mm-hmm. know, in, in, and but you're, you're, you're not going to learn very much, really, 
about the cheese trade in Renaissance Italy. You know, you're there to play a game, but the cheese part is there to give you the narrative. Uh, so war games are like that uh, because they it's it's a they all have to have a sort of mechanical underpinning, uh, but they have to have some kind of historical. Um, uh, some kind of historical gravitas, you know, that that doesn't bleed off too far into verisimilitude, but nor does it kind of like slough itself off into, you know, just kind of hand wavy, you know, mockery of it. And so that is one of the really, really great challenges to to the game designer. Um, you you have to do your research. Uh, I think it's important that you show your work especially when it's on a game on a, uh, a, a controversial or tricky topic like, Af you know, like Afghanistan, you'll understand that in the last few weeks um, mm -hmm. I've been writing and people have been talking to me a lot and asking me about, you know, is it possible in your game in a distant plane? Is it possible to mimic what actually happened? Um, in the first place, you know, the short answer there is, well, that's not what the game is all about. The game was designed in 2012 or 2013, and the game ends in 2013, 2014, because that's at the point where the, the war becomes different. You know, NATO finishes its combat mission, and from then on, it's something else. Um, I suppose if you back me into a corner, it would be possible to create an analog to what actually happened in the game, mm -hmm. but only if you had certain assumptions or meta assumptions outside of the game uh, and a lot of deliberately bad play on the part of the players for reasons that, again, are lie completely outside the reference of the game. Um, essentially, what happened in, in Afghanistan uh, last month, if you want to use the metaphor of a, of a game of a distant plane, is that the coalition player stands up and says, OK, um, I got to get up early tomorrow. The last bus is at 1045. I have to be on it. This is my copy of the game. So we got to pack it up and go. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, you know, the, the Afghan government players been sitting here thinking, yeah, I got to get up early tomorrow too. So I'm really not interested in playing anymore. So it kind of like was the phase in the game where people are kind of brushing the pieces around on the board and trying to collect them by light color before they put them back in the baggies and put them in the box. Uh, because there were political events outs and, and, and occurrences outside of the frame of reference of the game itself in the intervening eight years between 2013 and 2021 that uh, make this game no longer, you know, a, a good model. I mean, it's like, um, it's like uh, you know, criticizing a game on the invasion of France in 1940, the German invasion of France, and then complaining, well, okay, this is about 1940, mm -hmm. but it says nothing at all about the Battle of the Falaise Gap in 1944. You know, it, you know, what about the beaches of Normandy? You didn't say anything about the beaches of Normandy, but it's a 1940 game, you know? So anyway, it's, it's sorry, this is kind of clumsy that way. Anyhow, um, so, I, I think that a game, uh, I, I think a, a war game, a historical war game is, it's a work of art, like uh, like mm. an historical novel is a work of art or a, a painting, you know, is also a work of art. In any kind of work of art, the creator, uh, they, do their, they do their research, they do their technical practice, they do whatever they do. And their product is influenced by any number of things. They have to be honest about these influences. 
They have to be honest in showing the, in depicting the effect of these influences. And they have to understand, like everybody has to understand, that there is no such thing as a completely objective historical war game. There is mm -hmm. no objective, like it's just like there's no objective novel or piece of sculpture or painting or photograph even. Uh, they're, they're all the result of choices that were made by their creator. Uh, and, you know, without trying to sound too profound about it, uh, you cannot find something that will be perfectly balanced or perfectly objective. Uh, that's why I think it's important, especially with controversial subjects, to show that you, you know, made an honest effort at your mm -hmm. research, at incorporating a balanced um, viewpoint that has, uh, you know, at least a, a, a weak analog to what mm -hmm. happened historically, uh, isn't revisionist, uh, or if it is revisionist, it definitely shows its work, mm -hmm. um, and these sorts of things. So, yes, accuracy is important, uh, but inaccuracy will be there. It has to be acknowledged. It has to be um, reflected upon. Uh, and everybody has to re acknowledge and reflect upon it when they're, when they're going through it, uh, the player and the designer alike. A fantastic answer. Yeah, thank you very much for this. Now, I want to transition uh, a bit from just brief border wars in general and talk about like the onset of the pandemic a bit and even us collaborating in a digital space like us many players have started using tabletop simulator to play your board games online how did you find this transition from players gathering around the board to now playing board games on the computer how how was it for you well um i'm old school i'm 56 mm -hmm. uh and i started playing in 1979 uh i am not a a big computer war game player I have never been a big computer war game player. Uh, this sets me apart in my, uh, you know, in, in my profession, well, not professional, but in, in, in my game design practice uh, and my playtime practice from people younger than myself who grew up with computers and are far more, um, uh, are, are far more familiar uh, and, and positive towards playing on a screen. I understand that there are advantages that the digital format has in all kinds of games. Um, like, and I think that there are lots of advantages in the physical format of games as well, playing face-to-face. -face. The pandemic, of course, has thrown a wrench into all of that. Um, so uh, it, was, it, it, it was scarce enough that I had a chance to get together with other people uh, before the pandemic to sit and play games. Um, my city is not very big. Uh, not a lot of people are into the same kind of games, mm. you know, that I was playing with. And of course, the people that I normally play with, they're also game designers. So mm -hmm. we don't, we normally don't play games that other people have designed. It's, we're, it's in a sense, it's sort of like, um, like a, like a murder board, you know, like a, a, a kind of host, semi-hostile playtesting of what, mm -hmm. of what, you know, of what Ian or Brian or Steven has come up with lately. Uh, so we tend to do that. It's, uh, you know, kind of eating off each other's plates. Um, but of course, with the pandemic that went away, and so many people made uh, the leap to digital. Uh, me, reluctantly, I went to Tabletop Simulator, uh, because every attempt that I've made in the last three years to learn how to do Vassal, uh, I don't know if your uh, mm -hmm. listeners would be familiar with Vassal, that's a computer program that 
ports uh, board war games. It's it's used a lot for historical board war games. Um, it, it had defeated my every attempt to try and learn it. Uh, and so I learned about Tabletop Simulator. Uh, and it's uh, much better at creating a physical or a digital analog of a physical game. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's it, it seems to kind of try and strike the middle ground there. Um, I learned it and I got a little bit of facility with it. I have a few games of my own that I put up on Tabletop Simulator. Partly it was because of the pandemic and partly it was because of home renovations. Um, about, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, about four months, four or five months into the pandemic, uh, my wife decided it was a good time to do some renovations in the upper part of the house, uh, which included my study and my usual gaming area. Well, my usually, my usual gaming area is down here where I'm sitting right mm -hmm. now. However, all of my office stuff, you know, my, 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 my day job came home and then my day job, it, it, my day job came home and went into my study. Mm -hmm. Then my study came downstairs and established itself on the table where I'm sitting now. Uh, so everything was on here. And of course, I have no horizontal surfaces, um, you know, to play on. Uh, so willy nilly, I had to go to Tabletop Simulator because it was like the last playable surface left mm -hmm. to me. So again, I it was partly that it was it, it was the pandemic, yeah, in both in both wises, but just not just because I wasn't being able to, we weren't being able to be around people anymore, but also for me it was because I lost you know my physical space to do solitaire mm -hmm. testing and modeling of games. So besides the tabletop modules that I've made for a couple of my games, Gorilla Checkers is one of them, um, and. Uh, I've been working on a couple of prototypes of games as well on Tabletop Simulator. Um, I got to say, though, personally, I don't find it that great. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm old school. Uh, I'm, uh, I, I kind of like the physical, the feel of a physical prototype and of manipulating pieces, you know, with my fingers and not with the mouse. Um, it's just, it's the tactility of it. Like there's the direct face-to-face, -face, you know, experience experience in, 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 in being with a table of people and playing a multiplayer game that you just don't get, uh, you know, online. Um, so it's a substitute. Uh, it's not the best substitute, um, but beats doing nothing. Mm -hmm. it's, um, so it's, um, I found it a challenge a little bit to, to get into Tabletop Simulator and, and how to put things together and move things around. Uh, but I like it a little bit more now. Uh, but as soon as things stabilize and we get to back to talking and, and working with each other again in person, um, I think I'll be back to my uh, my my physical map and my 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 counters. Mm. Yeah, and and so we will will be actually at the lab now that I think about it. Yeah, um, you've written and spoken a lot about like self publishing <clears throat> and the advantages of self publishing, and I just want to ask you in general. What advice do you have for people wanting to self-publish their own games today? What is the number one advice you would give someone who's interested in self-publishing? Do it. <laughs> <laughs> do it. If you have an idea, if you've got something that stimulates you to the point where you want to put in the time and the effort to, uh, to, to make a game, do it. You know, it will pay off in so many ways. It won't pay off in money. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll tell you that because I have been publishing ge these games for 25 years. As I said, I have over 50, getting, verging on 60 published titles now. And all the money I have ever made, uh, I'll be honest with you, every, all the money I've ever made 
in publishing these games is equal to about mm, the first seven months of pay at mm -hmm. my day job, you know, for this year. So <laughs> uh, a long time ago, one of my first publishing um, outlets was uh, an outfit called the Microgame Design Group uh, with a friend of mine. And uh, for the amount of time that we spent working on these things, um, we would have been better off spending it hour for hour collecting aluminum cans, you know, <laughs> for the nickel deposit. Uh, really, very few people make serious money off of games. And if they do, um, it's not from war games. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the great majority of all the money I've ever made has been just three titles, uh, A Distant Plane, Colonial Twilight, and Knights of Fire, uh, which is a game that came out a couple of years ago about the street fighting in Budapest in 1956. Uh, so those three are responsible for the great bulk of the money I've made on this. So, you know, you won't get rich in a monetary sense, but you will get rich in any number of other ways. Uh, your research skills, your design thinking skills, uh, your thoughts about how to present things visually mm -hmm. um, and ergonomically, put it that way, um, how ideas relate to each other. It's uh, like to, to, to design a workable game is to go through a successful exercise in systems thinking. Um, I don't know if you, I, I haven't heard the podcast that you had last time mm -hmm. with Volko, but Volko probably touched on this whole systems thinking concept. Yeah. Uh, yeah, good. He explains that far better than I possibly could. Uh, and that's exactly what game design is. It's it's systems thinking. And because you have all these little systems that feed into bigger systems and a, a perturbation in one part of the mechanism will have an effect elsewhere in the mechanism. And for you to put a game design together and tune everything and have it work like that, and yet it still says something, you know, relevant and what you wanted to say about a particular conflict or a, and of course, it doesn't have to be about armed conflict. Mm -hmm. There are so many games um, out there about political and social movements that use, uh, you know, Euro game or sometimes war game type mechanisms to make points about this. Uh, I don't know if Volko was talking about the uh, Zenobia Awards. He was, yeah. Yes. So go and uh, I don't know if you posted a link, but the, the finalists for the Zenobia Awards have come out. And oh, my God, the, the creativity, you know, among the, the finalists and well, among everybody, mm -hmm. but especially among the finalists, that the topics that they chose, um, you know, not all of them dealt with overt armed conflict uh, or a lot of them didn't deal with armed conflict at all, but about social and cultural conflicts. Just brilliant, brilliant creativity. Uh, and yet. You know, again, successful exercises in systems thinking. And to make all of that work will affect you in the way you think, the way you relate to your day job work, the way you relate to your studies, the way you relate to other people, and the way you relate to the world, uh, and just how you set ideas in order and how you work them out. Um, and you're, and if you really apply yourself, your writing will be better too. Mm -hmm. uh, I. I have uh, my day job is I work, as you noted, I'm in my spare time. Haha. I'm uh, an education officer in uh, for the government of my province, British Columbia, that deals with post-secondary education. Um, I've been in the public service for about 27 years now. My first few years were spent in a different ministry, the Ministry of Health. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I was looking for a different job. I wanted to go to a different ministry. And uh, it, was, it wasn't very easy. And in the end, I found the job where I'm working now, over 20 years later, I'm very happy in it. Uh, and I was given to understand that one thing that helped me to get this job was the quality of my writing. And I put that down to uh, having learned something about how to write game rules, because writing game rules is a very exacting form of technical writing and technical mm -hmm. documentation. And of course, you have to, you know, I mean, okay, you're, you're a language man yourself, you understand about what has to be done in order to try and communicate clearly. Uh, and so the discipline that you instill, uh, have to instill in yourself in writing a clear set of game rules and getting your points across, uh, that helped me, helped me get a better job. I'm very happy where I am now. That's a wonderful answer. Thank you very much. Yeah, it, it's about becoming rich yourself rather than like, a, I suppose, amassing, you know, um, wealth in that sense. Um Heading to the to the final part of this podcast, I want to ask you just personally, uh, which games would you recommend to our audience? What are you playing now? What, what kind of games uh, are you are you into when you can, even in a digital space or in a physical space? What have you been playing? What can you recommend? Well, um, I mean, people need to play the games. Like, well, I'm mostly an historical gamer, mm -hmm. and people need to play the if people are going to play, play historical games. I think they need to play the games that interest the most in terms of a topic, you know, uh, which historical conflicts or historical movements, you know, they want to look at. I think that would maintain a lot of your interest because it, it's it's an effort of will to sit mm -hmm. down and learn one of these things. Even a simpler game, uh, even a simpler war game is is yeah, among sort of the upper reaches of complexity for a like a, a multiplayer Euro themed war game. Um, it's, uh, I, I think that people have to think, you know, if you've got a, an interest in a particular period, you know, uh, maybe think about games on that first and go, pursue the, that route instead of saying, well, I want to, I, I want to play a game that uses the coin system. You know, it, it, I think your, your interest would be like, a, we, we get asked a lot of the time, you know, I want to try this coin system game series, which one should I start with? And the answer normally is start with the one with the historical topic that interests you mm -hmm. most, because that's what will sustain you through learning the game, because these are, you know, unusual games. They lie outside the experience of a lot of sort of Euro war gamers or casual players, uh, even video game players, you know, uh, setting aside the digital to analog. Mm -hmm. um, what have I been playing myself recently? My own stuff. I just I spend more time <laughs> playtesting my own stuff uh, than I do playing other people's games. Um, a couple of games that I've obtained recently that I really want to get some time to sit down and and work out uh, are uh, Europe Divided. That's uh, an, an interesting one. I've just been looking through the uh, the game uh, the rules there. It looks like a, a really interesting, although highly abstracted. Look at the last, uh, you know, 10, uh, 20, 30 years uh, in in Europe. It's an unusual uh, and looks to be a very thematic and, and fast experience. Um, I've also been fondling my copy of Oath uh, mm -hmm. by Cole Verla. Cole Ooh, Verla, we've had on the podcast. Yeah, lucky you. Uh, I have never met Cole, but I really admire his work. Uh, Cole is just brilliant. 
uh, root. I love root. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not the coin system. It's uh, someone tried to say, oh, well, root is just coin system with personas. And I disagree. <laughs> oh, but, no. but but Cole is he's his own. He's his own man. He's his own thing very much. And uh, the other games that he's come up with, you know, Pax Pamir, uh, um, the uh, his game on opium trading. You know, mm -hmm. it's, and uh, John Company, I haven't tried John that, Company, but, yeah. Yeah, it's just, uh, and, and now with Oath, uh, I mean, okay, unfortunately, you know, it's just me here uh, playing these things, but uh, I look forward to tussling with that. And, and the plays I've had of Root, uh, I just, uh, again, I really, really respect him. And um, it's, uh, you know, again, he's, a, he's a, a brilliant game designer, and he's also a brilliant writer on games as well. Uh, there's a uh, an online journal out there called the Journal of Analog Game Studies, and a few years ago, uh, Cole published a, an article in it uh, where he uh, compared and contrasted. Um, uh, well, the, the name of the title uh, was "Effective Networks at Play," mm -hmm. and uh, he, he looked at a distant plane uh, and uh, and um, uh, two other games. One of them was "The Quiet Year," which is a very interesting form of uh, application of role-playing games. Anyway, he definitely knows what he's talking about. He knows what he's trying to accomplish in a game design, and he's very articulate about writing about the kind of ideas and how he reflects them. His design diaries uh, that you can see on BoardGameGeek, uh, you know, against the particular games about how a particular game came to be are just brilliant, you know. So, yes, I look very forward very much to, to tussling with Oath and, uh, and and still playing Root. Um, let's see, what else have I been playing? Um, I got Mechanica a while ago mm -hmm. uh, because I wanted to have a, 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 war, a, a game by Mary Flanagan uh, because I love what Mary Flanagan writes about games. Um, a few years ago, there's an anthology that came out from MIT Press called Zones of Control. Boko and I co-wrote a chapter Okay, so you're familiar with that. Yeah. Mary Flanagan Mary Flanagan wrote the last chapter in the book uh, about war games, her experience of war games, and how she thinks war games should be designed, what they, what kind of ideas they should put across. And that's just an excellent, excellent piece. I, I couldn't think of a better conclusion to that very thick book uh, with, uh, to have a chapter by Mary Flanagan in it. Um, so I did do Mechanica, uh, mechanic and I played it a few times. Um, I didn't find it all that engaging. Mm. So I'm going to keep looking for other Mary Flanagan games. Um, this one, you know, didn't really do it for me. Um, but uh, I'm going to keep looking because uh, she's another person whose work I res and uh, thinking and writing I respect a lot. Yeah, wonderful. I think that's that's a lot of like orders and games for everyone to to check out. Brian, what comes next for you? What other projects can you tell us about that you're involved with? Well, uh, the first thing that's coming up is Brief Border Wars Volume 2. Wonderful. Yes. Uh, so after Brief Border Wars was published, uh, it, was, uh, it looked like a hit. And Compass Games, uh, who published it, were very pleased. And I set to work on another set of four games. Um, I, I had ideas for lots of different topics, uh, but uh, I talked to them and they said, well, why don't we try a set of pre-1945 titles? Mm -hmm. So the four uh, that we have in this uh, volume two are uh, the Second Balkan War of 1913. Uh, so that's Bulgaria invading 
Serbia and Greece and places like that. Um, Teshin, 1919. So as I said, I went back to that original dare mm -hmm. and I looked at the and I looked at the conflict again and I thought, yeah, there is a game in here after all. And now that I had a system to make it work and make it interesting, uh, there's a Teshin game in there. So Teshin 1919. Uh, and uh, the, four, the third one is Noman Han. Uh, 1939, or Gaul, uh, as it's mm -hmm. called. So that's uh, uh, the Japanese uh, invading uh, Mongolia and being met by Soviet Mongolian forces. Uh, that one's kind of interesting. Uh, and then the fourth one uh, to round out the set is uh, the Italian invasion of Greece in 1940. So it goes up to December uh, or so, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the, the first sort of phase uh, when the fighting settled down. So there... Uh, you have a stretch of time from 1913 to 1940. Uh, the, the four games all have very distinct settings and peculiarities among themselves and they're very different scales because they go from like rifle battalions, you know, and companies in the Teshin game up to divisions uh, in, in the uh, Balkan and, uh, and uh, Italian Greek wars. Um, and again, uh, we have the same variations and options that are worked into uh, each game, you know, to make things more or less challenging for, for uh, other sides. So volume two, um, I'm just doing a little bit of final editing on that. Um, the pandemic has really affected my productivity just because mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, my, my, my day job is going through a really, um, you know, intense phase for the last couple of years, a lot of projects I've been working on. Um, and, uh, you know, just uh, being constricted in, in physical space. Uh, and my father died about five months ago, which has kind of put a crimp in, in that as well. Um, but uh, so a lot of the work that I was working on up until the winter, you know, has kind of been in abeyance the last six or eight months. Um, but I'm, I'm going to be turning volume two of Brief Border Wars into Compass Games fairly soon now. Uh, after that, I'll be getting to work on China's War. Uh, mm -hmm. which is a game, it's a GMT coin system game I'm doing for GMT. Uh, it's four players, uh, China from 1937 to 1941. So you have the Japanese, uh, the uh, uh, Guomindang Central Army, uh, Warlords, and the Communist Party. So it's a four-cornered contest, um, and uh, it's, uh, it's interesting. It'll be like the largest uh, application of the... Um, of the coin system because the mm -hmm. map is all of Eastern China and it covers four, four years of, of, of conflict. Uh, so we started, I got that to the point where it worked pretty well uh, and I put it in, uh, it's now in play testing. It's with a play mm -hmm. tester and developer with uh, GMT. Although again, the pandemic has really slowed things down uh, for everybody's development and production. So I don't expect, people are waiting for it but I don't think it's gonna be out for another couple of years at least. Mm -hmm just because of the problems with uh, just simply getting games printed and produced and shipped back to the United States and sold. Um, I've also been working on a revision, a drastic revision of a card game I did a few years ago called Caudille. Um, this is a game that I designed in 2013 on a very thinly disguised post Hugo Chavez Venezuela. Mm -hmm. And it's a card game about power politics and about filling a power vacuum after a strong charismatic character, a Caudillo departs the scene. Uh, so who's gonna be the next Caudillo? So it's in this made up country, uh, 
and I put out a game and a free version of it. There's a, a, a page on my website where with six or seven free games on it that people can download and print out themselves. Um, and that's one of them. However, with David Tertzi, the guy I co-designed um, uh, Knights of Fire with, uh, we're working on a big um, overhaul of that mm -hmm. to make it uh, just a development of the idea, but just to make it a bit more engaging. And then, oh, big secret project. Well, maybe not okay. so secret anymore. Uh, is I've been working on another twist of the GMT coin system. Uh, and it's not about insurgency anymore. It's not even about war anymore. Mm -hmm. It's about politics. I've always felt that the coin system, which is essentially about asymmetric means and methods and opportunities, and of course, motives as well, would suit itself really well to a power politics situation where people don't actually get shot or hurt. Um, but uh, it, it's a, a good way to, to model, you know, some of the aspects of, of uh, political movements between them and the kind of different powers that different uh, political movements or tendencies can have between them. So politics is a fairly popular theme in Euro games, um, mm -hmm. but they all go off in one direction or other. A lot of them are about factions within party politics and that kind of stuff. And that's kind of brushing up against it. So this is a reboot of an SPI game uh, about done about Canadian politics years ago, but now I've rebooted it through um, the GMT coin system and I've been working on that. Um, so uh, I doubt that anybody would want to formally publish it, uh, but it's something that when I get it working the way I want to, because again, you know, work's mm -hmm. been kind of interrupted on that. Uh, when I have it done, I'll probably just make it available to people freely because uh, it's about Canada and, you know, not a lot of Canadian gamers and not a lot of people who are war game, Canadian war gamers and interested in Canadian politics. Mm. But, you know, hey, I do what interests me, you know, I, again, you know, if you're going to be a, a game designer on your own, you know, discard thoughts of riches, but think of everything else that it will mm. give you in, in so many other ways. Yeah, fantastic. So we have... Four titles to, to expect from you. Any pre-order links? Anything that we can we can look forward in terms of like anticipating? Like, is Volume Two, for example, of Brave Border Wars available to pre-purchase or pre-order in any way? No, not yet. Uh, I'm as I said, I'm going to be turning it into them uh, quite soon now. Uh, John Krantz, who's kind of the principal motion guy, uh, it has just finished winding up a long uh, uh, game convention in mm -hmm. Arizona. So I'm, I want to give him a little bit of breathing space before I send him this. Uh, but yeah, volume two has been ready to go for a while now. Uh, and because it uses a tested, you know, already tested system and, you know, some of the components are similar, you know, the card decks and the rules, basic rules are similar. Uh, it's a question of uh, getting the map and counter art together. Uh, and maybe a little bit more, you know, testing and development, but it should be able to come out fairly soon. Um, it's up to Compass when they want to offer it for pre-publication, mm -hmm. but hopefully, you know, oh, maybe by the end of the year, although I think that would be asking a bit much. Mm. Uh, China's War, as I said, that probably won't be in people's houses for another couple of years, just because there's so much in the GMT pipeline, pandemic or not. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, just uh, the, the disruption to supply lines all over the world for all kinds of things, uh, you know, including board games, <laughs> uh, is just, uh, people are just going to have to be patient. Yeah. Well, uh, but the other two titles, uh, when I'm done working on them, um, I don't know if I can find a formal publisher for them, but if I don't, 
I will just publish them myself. And again, I recommend uh, people take a look at that, uh, uh, the, um, the, the lecture on uh, game design or self-publishing that uh, you, you've got a link to. Mm -hmm. That says everything that I want to say about why to publish and how to publish and, uh, you know, uh, what to do with it. So I hope uh, that will uh, people will find that interesting. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, and, and as you say, everything that we've mentioned in this podcast will be available to you via link in the description of the video that you may be watching or the podcast that you may be listening to. Okay, Brian, as we come to to a close with this podcast, let me remind our audience that, like, uh, again, a new academic year is about to start for us here in Scotland, and so we are uh, ramping up our activity. Uh, Justin Biggie, the president of the History and Games Society, was uh presented the society for freshers week here in edinburgh at edinburgh university so we were very excited to see many of you come and be interested in the society itself we've also had our first social event for the society that i was lucky to to be part of and i was i was more than happy to see familiar faces and also new faces from in and outside the university so that it's always great to see to see people excited about history and games and the places where where they meet so we're looking forward to seeing more of you get in touch with us in any way shape or form and in order to stay in touch with the society and the lab at least on social media do search for hng sock on social media that's for the society and hng lab for the lab Alternatively, if you have any feedback for this podcast or would like to get in touch for a potential podcast appearance, our DMs are open on Twitter at HNGLab, or you can email us at HNGLabPodcast at gmail.com. Again, all of these links will be available to you in the description. Brian, where could our listeners find more about you? Uh, well, the best way, I think, is uh, have a look at um, my uh, game design website and blog, uh, and you'll have a link to that. Uh, I'm on Board Game Geek as uh, LT Murnau, uh, L-T-M-U-R-N-A-U. Uh, I'm also on Consum World, um, but, you know, uh, probably mm -hmm. most of your listeners uh, don't know about that. Um, and, uh, you know, you can always get in touch with me. I'm, I'm happy to, to talk with people. Um, and just uh, just pleased to engage with people about uh, you know game design and about these topics generally. Yeah, thank you so much for that, uh, Brian. If there's one thing you would like to emphasize, one thing for our audience to take to take away from this podcast, as as we've discussed earlier, what is what would that one thing be? Um, well, you know, if anybody out there is interested in designing games or thinking of games as a means of expression. By all means, do it. You know, uh, even working towards something that a project you might end up abandoning and putting away, I think it's all effort that will all come to the good. Uh, so, do it. <laughs> Fantastic. Do it now. <laughs> Once again, thank you so much for Brian to Brian for joining me. Until next time, everyone. Bye bye. The Edinburgh University History and Games Lab podcast is a production of the Edinburgh University History and Games Lab. For more on us and future podcasts, connect to us on Twitter, Instagram, and or Facebook by searching for Edinburgh University History and Games Lab. We should be the first result. Music for today's episode is Call to Adventure by Kevin McLeod, used under filmmusic.io standard license. For more information on the link and the license, please check the show notes. Thank you for listening, and please join us next time.